0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And gentlemen, Jen, I want you to jump it off here with Julian Emanuel of BTIG. And I will only say that he's one of the few that is steadfastly participated in this great bull market by writing thoughtful pieces. He's not just going, own stocks, you know, go, go, go. <laughs> He's really tried to construct a theory to stay in he the market. He started
1: the year as one of the biggest equity market bulls on the street out of all the strategists we surveyed. I didn't know that. And I just I wonder whether stuff. we've hit his price target already. <laughs> Julian Emmanuel of BTIG joining us right now. Julian, great to have you with us. Just walk me through that. What do you say to clients after the rally we've already had to the start of the year?
2: Well, our theory has been that this could be a year where, you know, first of all, the backdrop is 20 plus percent years like we had in 2019 tend to be followed by positive years. That may be counterintuitive. The average gain is around sort of 12 to 14 percent. So from our point of view, in an environment where, as we've said numerous times, The public has not really fully engaged in the equity markets. You look at flows, flows have been going into money market funds, flows have been going into bond funds very consistently for the last five years. Um, This could be the year uh, where you get upside beyond our 3450 price target based on the public actually becoming an active buyer of stocks. So our message is, uh, you know, it's, it's been a very good two weeks. It's been a very good four months. Just stay patient. Uh, you know, don't be aggressive buyers into moves th- this far, this stretched, because yeah. you could have a pullback at any time
1: but just be patient. Well, your message to retail now, Julian, let's talk about it. Tom and I started the program by discussing valuations. How much higher could they go? If you look at this market right now and you have a retail client sitting in front of you that's missed out on this rally of the last 12 months or so, and they ask you, what's the one valuation metric at the moment that you're looking at that says, green light, get back in?
2: Good old fashioned price earnings. Okay, To us, at what we expect sort of, you call it 18 and a half to 19 times, uh, it feels high, but if you look at the last 30 years of history, it's really only slightly above mid-range. Um, and in a backdrop where we do expect uh, long-end yields to gradually creep higher... Yeah. Um, it, it, that is not necessarily at all a headwind. And in fact, we would argue it's a tailwind because the absolute level of rates are low. And again, we do think there could be this psychology shift to the extent that you start poking above 2% in the 10-year yield in the US and, and, and zero, above zero in, in the German 10-year yield, that the
1: psychology becomes even more proactive. Well, Julian, I want to pick you up on the forward multiple. If you take the 30-year history as an example isn't that skewed by the excesses of 2000 by 06 by 07 as well if you look at the last 10 years in this bull market 18 and a half times forward earnings is the upper range of valuations isn't it,
2: it, it based on the last 10 years but again i think for us uh, we've looked at it sort of cold war uh, essentially the 30 years prior to 1989 and post-Cold War. Um, And and you can sort of best fit the data. But from our point of view, sort of 1989 onwards really represents the time when the embracing of equity investing as something that's permeated popular culture and permeated the average person's portfolio. That sort of justifies where we're thinking.
0: You're just joining us now. Julian Emanuel with his BTIG. He's in the Interactive Broker Studios at our world headquarters, Lexington and 59th. John Farrow and I ensconced, I say, at Invesco, our annual visit to the good offices of Invesco here in a vibrant downtown Manhattan, lower Manhattan. We're thrilled you're with us coast to coast and worldwide as well. Julian, I want to go back to March of 1999. This is a few years ago. And in Barron's, Tom Gelvin, the legend of DLJ talking a price to sales. I, I love the article, Dow 16,000 question mark. I mean, explain the punditry of the market and the strategy of the market versus just being in the market and participating in 1999, what is that? 20? I can't keep track. 21 years ago? Wow, <laughs> 21 years ago. Dow 16,000. Solid question mark. math, that's all. Thank well you. Done. And Galvin and Galvin nails it by saying, you know, you extrapolate out, they're going to get to 16,000 by 2006 with bond yields below six percent. Absolutely nailed the call. Should we just throw all this away, Julian, and just own stocks for the long term?
2: Well. We will go with that uh, tried and true saying: "It is never different this time." And part of what we're looking at is if we do get to a point of you know real public uh, enthusiasm, sort of you know that irrational exuberance that clearly we saw at the end of nineteen ninety nine and the beginning of two thousand. And you'll know if there is significant multiple expansion. Um, that would be a caution <coughs> yeah. sign to us.
0: Okay, what's a BTIG exuberance meter this morning? I mean, is he irrational out there, or are we, are we rationally bullish?
2: So in, in the short term, there's definitely a little bit of froth. But when we look at the medium and the long term, what's fascinating to us yeah. is the options market is actually telling you that the degree of caution, particularly over the election term, is very, very high.
0: This is really important. What you just heard from Julian Emanuel there. Thank you so much, Julian Emanuel with BTIG to get Junior, us thank you. Uh, going. I've lost on uh, on the screen here. I can't see it through the uh, plates of avocado what you, what toast. What would you like to see? I I, I lost the, There we are. Futures up eight. now futures up seventy five. May and go away, which means you got to get back in at some point.
1: Do you want to sell on January 17th? And go away. And, and go away and, and maybe lock things down for a little bit.
0: I, what I mean, these are important decisions, and I would suggest the research shows it's not the selling action. It's a getting back into the market action. I it's agree. Tough.
1: If you've missed this rally, I think it's really difficult to find a point of entry right now.
0: See, how, see, Christina, how he says that with meanness because he knows I'm in the triple
1: leveraged all cash fund. Shall we introduce Christina properly? We're in her house. <laughs>
0: okay, we're Christina Hooper uh, welcoming us today at Invesco. We're thrilled to be here. She is the head of it all, the chief global market strategist. And she has one of the coolest degrees in America, which is if you are minted in labor economics high above Cayuga's waters, that is really, really cool. It's one of the most prestigious degrees in America to have a master's in labor economics from Cornell, Take that academics to the fully employed America right now knowing that John and I are number one emails and messages and handwritten letters from people is no, it's not fully employed.
3: Well, I think what we're seeing is the effects of having a very weak job recovery for so long. Um, when we think about the post-global financial crisis environment, it's one in which really the job recovery lagged everything else. And so yes, now we're at full employment, but we're in a different kind of employment environment. One in which there are more um, folks who are deriving income from multiple uh, areas of employment. Yeah, um, you know, like that. Yeah. You yeah. know, pulling together, yeah. a, a, you know, sort of a task rabbit economy. And so, uh, of course, we've seen really uh, unimpressive wage growth for well, years now. So so this is a very different okay. environment than a typical um, uh, labor recovery. One
0: more wonky economic question. John's trying to t- uh, ask you about, you know, the, the, the market at 29297 on the Dow. We're on the Dow Are we on the Dow 30,000 You do watch?
1: the Dow watching thing. I don't do that. Okay, I'm I, on the Dow 30,000 watch. One more question. Rated, market cap weighted index. Does
0: tepid wage growth go right over to inflation? Is the reason Chairman Powell's struggling with inflation simply because of an odd labor economy with tepid wage growth?
3: I think that's certainly part of the problem. Uh, I know that for Janet Yellen, it was a very big focus. Slack. Right? She had that. Uh, you know, 19-point labor conditions indicator that she would use because there is a, you know, a school of thought that believes that wage growth has so much to do with inflation. So
1: what's the basic argument I hear from you at the moment? Because the recovery has been shallow, it can go on a whole lot longer?
3: I think so. Um, It's certainly going to be a somewhat modest recovery. I think we're going to see a little steam loss this year, but we'll probably at the end of the year uh, see growth at about 2% for 2020 in the United States. I think this is a time where we're going to see, you know, an improving growth environment in Asia EM, uh, especially China.
1: I think people comfortable this year in a way they weren't 12 months ago that the biggest risk this year is not economic risk, it's market risk because of valuations. Coming into a year where we've already already had a massive rally and we trade at 18 plus times forward earnings. Your message to people at the moment, Tom and I have asked multiple people about it over the last week and already this morning. If people missed out on this rally over the last 12 months, what's the one metric you look at right now that says green light, come back in?
3: Well, I think it's looking at long-term returns, that we know that especially when we look at valuations, they are not predictive over the shorter term. Yes, over the long run, valuations are predictive of performance, but you can have extended valuations for an extended period of time. Uh, and, and the reality is that uh, the biggest uh, issue that most va- investors face is not participating in the equity market. Okay,
0: but this is really, really important what you just said. It goes to the heart of all of financial study, and academics, ratios don't matter short-term. Then what does?
3: So what does? uh, Certainly what we're seeing in this environment, the dominant factor has been and continues to be central banks, particularly the Fed. I think we can't underestimate the power of the Fed, especially when it came out and made very clear in the fourth quarter of 2019 that the bar is extremely high on raising rates after giving markets three insurance cuts, in uh, an environment when many, where many could argue point? that they were okay, they weren't I, necessary. I'm
0: not going to ask you this question because your general counsel is going to get angry at me and cut off the avocado toast. John Farrell, you I'm lost to me ask instead. You, Thanks a instead, lot. Instead, I'm going to ask you.
1: Since when is it the job of the central bank to support equity markets for the last ten years? They've decided that financial conditions matter a whole lot more and that they're in the driving seat for financial conditions. Look, have some sympathy with the idea. Back end of, of 2018, in December of that year, if the primary market for credit in the United States completely seizes up because people are worried about the economy and the Fed, Fed's got a job to do. They've got to get the money markets back open. And that was the job they had to do in the financial crisis. And I'm not saying things were as bad as that 12 months ago. I'm certainly not even going there, Christina. But the Fed sees it as their job to support financial conditions. The argument I would make at this point is that do they really need to be supporting financial conditions to the extent they are at the moment?
3: Well, that's a great question. Uh, they believe it is, and it's within their purview. You know, One could argue that if you ported Jay Powell to the Bank of England, there would be a few insurance cuts there, too, just given the high level of economic policy uncertainty. But it is certainly within the purview of the Fed to define its role and, and focus on financial conditions, and there's a good argument for it, in that in the United States, at yeah. least, the fortunes of the stock market tend to be somewhat correlated with the fortunes of the economy.
0: If you're just joining us, John on Tom Keene, one of our favorite efforts of the year to wander downtown in the dark, frozen morning.
1: It is cold. It is cold. It's I always like, find it colder like, downtown than in Midtown. It, that's
0: the the wind, it's water, just Hudson River. You know Washington across you the. You come Calarao downtown during the twice flight, a year,
1: don't you? The 57 the mother country, twice a year. Is this the second time in the last 12 (laughs) months?
0: The police picked up the entourage around the Bentley and said, why is he downtown? Christina Hooper here. She is our chief global market strategist at Invesco. And we're thrilled to be with uh, Invesco uh, this morning. What are the fistfights right now in your strategy meetings at Invesco? What's the biggest point of debate? Because one of the hallmarks of Invesco is you get in the room and everybody argues. Some houses do that. But Invesco is codified, constructive argument. What's a single argument? Right now at Invesco.
3: Well, one of the conversations that we've had, um, uh, f- you know, quite frequently, sort of an extended debate, has been about where are we going to see uh, strong growth this year? And certainly the U.S., there have been question marks. Uh, we've even debated how much volatility we expect to see this year, uh, how much economic policy uncertainty we'll see. You know, keep in mind, we've got a U.S. presidential election where there is just no, no visibility on who the Democratic candidate is going to be. So, uh, you know, some of us expect a fair amount of volatility this year, especially if we see um, more progressive candidates candidates win high-profile primaries, you could see short-term sell-offs in particular industries that are expected to be more heavily regulated. Um, But I I think there's general consensus and and a lot of excitement around uh, Asia EM, uh, particularly China.
0: I want to. That, that's a really important topic. We'll cover that with Investco uh, this morning. Are you still very quickly here? Are you still international based, overweight international with your expertise?
3: Well, we are definitely um, more bullish on Asia EM. We're we're very selective outside you know, of the U.S. Um, modestly bullish on the U.S., um, but where we would focus is uh, Asia EM, especially China. Now,
0: Christina, Christina, thank Christina you good so to much. see you. Christina Hooper, she is chief global market strategist, in VESCO. question of the moment. George Evans is exceptionally qualified to answer the question. His world's been asleep for 10 years. It woke up in Q4. Now what? Which is his head of global equities and portfolio manager for Invesco Oppenheimer International Growth Fund. Uh, We simply ask him about finally international investment has come to light. Let's look back quickly here, George, with all your decades of experience. How far behind was international investment in the last two five even seven years
4: well if you go back to the uh, early 70s there was a you know it basically flip-flopped every two to four years between like clockwork between u.s leadership and non-us leadership yep. the last uh 12 years has been absolutely exceptional with the s&p leading the way uh, every year but one so we are way due for a sort of an inflection point to turn towards international
0: why did that happen what affected the change and what was in all the textbooks you and i read about a cyclic feel to it to a structural shift to buy us or a structural shift to not choose to buy international
4: well i think the first thing to point out is that the uh the u.s sort of had leadership in a lot of the key global sectors over the last 10 years. So think Tech. of the fangs, yeah. biotech, things of that nature. The other thing was the US did a much better job in grappling the problems with the financial system post global financial crisis, which mm-hmm. the Europeans really failed to do. Uh, I think the third thing to point out would be that the emerging markets, a lot of the emerging markets, are very much led by commodities. We had that huge commodity boom 2002 to th- the ended uh, in 2012. China 12. Well, China race. boom, but also, you know, all of Latin America, all of Africa, right, a lot right, of Southeast right. Asia is commodity oriented. So you just can't get away from that. So, so
0: where are we now after a Q4? Was it a pop that will fade away or is there something substantial here to allocating more to international versus where we've been for a decade?
4: Well, I think there are a few things that are very supportive. The first thing is that if you look at the, the dials of risk, A lot of those risk dials that were up through basically the third quarter of last year have come down so europe is much more oriented towards global trade and global trade was clearly uh, negatively affected by the trade spat uh, which lasted a year and a half so global trade getting better is really good for more open economies europe and asia uh second thing is that you've got really good valuations Uh, We've got uh, risks that everyone's been aware of, particularly around Brexit, which are likely to be resolved in very short order. So risk down, valuations are good, and you've got the potential for an acceleration of GDP in a lot of these more open economies.
0: Can I buy the George Evans world by buying multinationals? That used to be a game in itself.
4: So, I mean, look, the thing that everyone's got to realize is that Pretty much every index is a multinational index now. So, about more than fifty percent of the revenues and earnings of the S and P come from outside
0: Five the U.S. Five zero,
4: more than fifty. I did not know that. I thought it was less. So, you have a very much a, an international orientation of most of the big companies, ex the financials, uh, in most of the world. So, the U.S. has many excellent global companies that are addressing global growth opportunities. There are excellent global companies that happen to be based in Europe and Japan. So if you want to buy luxury goods, which is a really good sector, you've basically got to be in Europe now. Louis Vuitton is European.
0: Really? I didn't know
4: that. Richemont is European. Louis Vuitton is buying Tiffany. Really? Um, so uh, there's a huge opportunity for uplift there.
0: What is it about luxury? Would you explain to me the multi- I mean, I mean, we talk about Apple and the rest. Do you look at the ratios of luxury is... Out of kilter is what we see in selected FANG and tech stocks.
4: Luxury is a very, very good area to invest because there's incredible growth dynamic, which is likely to last a long time, and they are really profitable because in many cases, the price is the product. So they're able, you know, if you go into an Hermes store...
0: No, that would never happen.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm wearing
0: an Hermes bow tie, folks. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Okay. If you went into an Hermes store... Today, yeah. five years ago, 10 years ago, they're all lots of very expensive goods. And really, the only thing that really changes is the price. So they just move the price up about 2 to 4% every year. Okay. No fashion risk. Fantastic. George
0: product. Evans with us with Invesco. is uh, I crater into Friday and the weekend and what I'm going to do this weekend to salvage going away to Switzerland for one week. I'll talk Gucci Garden in Florence. I mean, you look at luxury goods. And the branding of it in those valuations, you mentioned Tiffany and yeah. the takeout and Van Cleef at 57th and Fifth Avenue and all that. The branding seems to be exquisite. And on the revenue stream there, do we underestimate the persistency of the revenue stream, whether it's Gucci Garden or Tiffany on Fifth Avenue?
4: Well, uh, the the amazing thing with luxury goods is the degree to which emerging market consumers are... Buying luxury goods, so over fifty percent. That hasn't ebbed with the China slowdown. Nope, fifty percent. There was a there was a bit of an ebb when they had that austerity package, when people weren't allowed to you know gift each other ten, twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollars watches and things like that. But there's a relentless growth in the addressable market as emerging market consumers get wealthier. So over fifty percent of the sales of luxury goods right. to emerging market consumers. The more unequal the incomes are in any country, the more people like to signal where they are on the totem pole. So, mm-hmm. Scandinavians, you know, low, lower propensity to buy luxury goods. People from Brazil, Russia, China, very high propensity to buy luxury goods. So, there has been, there's an, it been an incredible sort of revenue growth over the last 10, 20 years, which we think is going to go on. Uh, the returns on capital employed are very very high is this
0: sector over or under owned by institutions I mean this is a raging debate on Apple and the rest uh, right now but but is it over owned
4: uh, I haven't sort of looked at the top ownership but I, I you know I think that f- you know this is clearly a sector which has on a global basis it, it is fantastically profitable great growth dynamic and I think there's going to be It's one of those sectors where there's going to be consistent buying pressure.
0: Okay, one final question, uh, and we're going to have you back here to really go into some of the idiosyncrasies that we see worldwide. Is the United States of America part of international investing? If you buy international, do you bring in the United States or do you really stay discreet from
5: that?
4: So international investing world means everything but the U.S., so the term global is everywhere so our global funds have 40 to 60 percent in the u.s the international funds are a, really okay, a portfolio completion so that's anywhere but the u.s
0: yeah. george evans with us this is fascinating we're going to come back on some of the idiosyncrasies i know paul sweeney's got uh, questions in some of the unique n11 and em economies uh, as well Is a joy to speak to Margaret Brennan of the history that we have observed in the last 48 hours. I could do a one hour conversation, Margaret, with you. You're going to enjoy a one hour discussion. Face the Nation. See it on CBS Sunday morning. You can hear it on Bloomberg Radio Sunday afternoon. Margaret, I'm going to cut to the chase. Four inch headlines in the Times and the Post as a certain elite riveted. Is the rest of the nation engaged in what we're seeing in Washington?
5: You know, I think when you see John Roberts, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, getting sworn in and you see the decorum that is enforced, Senators not being able to speak on the floor, it's a good reminder of, what we're watching being historic and not just the usual Washington fighting with itself moment. I think sometimes it's hard for the rest of the country to <clears throat> believe that or get perspective on it because it just always seems like the partisan right. bickering is constant, but our country has literally hardly right. ever done this before. This is the third time, 1868, right. 1999, 2020. Um, and so I think it is worth pumping the brakes, taking a moment and saying, This has tremendous gravity. You just said the House of Representatives issue a vote of no confidence in the president. And now you have the Senate debating his removal, even though we know it is far from likely to get two thirds of the Senate to vote to do that, to eject the president. This is politically damaging. Mm -hmm. It is lasting and it is politically uh, a huge moment.
0: And the Washington Post, folks, with a terrific article on the background of the justice during impeachment hearings and on Justice Roberts as well. Margaret, what is the back and forth between the senator from Maine and the senator from Kentucky? What will be that back and forth in the coming days?
5: Well, this gets fundamentally to the question of whether the Senate trial will allow for witnesses and evidence to be introduced. The House Democrats acknowledged that their investigation was incomplete. In fact, one of the articles of impeachment is obstruction of justice because the president uh, attempts to block witnesses and to not hand over documents. So the hope had been in the Senate for Democrats that they'd be able to get that handed over. Susan Collins uh, of Maine has indicated that she does think maybe it's worth hearing from some of these people with firsthand knowledge, like John Bolton, the former national security advisor to the president. And so she's indicating that when it comes up for a vote, uh, that she might be actually voting alongside Democrats to say, I want to hear exactly what it is. That happened from somebody who was in the room because we haven't heard from any of those firsthand witnesses. Right. Republicans complain about that process in the House not involving firsthand witnesses. Now, some Republican senators say, okay, well, let's hear from some of them now. Um, That's the fight. Uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, wants to help the White House get what it has set out as their hope for the fastest impeachment trial in American history, that it could be just a, a matter of a quick few weeks. Uh, rather than drawn out eleven weeks or more, as it was during uh, Johnson's period of trial.
6: Margaret, news yesterday: the General Accountability Office says that the White House broke the law in withholding aid to Ukraine. How important is that to the whole impeachment process?
5: Well, it, it's not as material as saying new evidence, but it's a, it's an exclamation point on a on a talking point that Democrats are are using to say, look, this wasn't the president making a policy choice on his own. This was essentially him trying to overwill the uh, spending powers that member Congress has the power of the purse and the will and intent of Congress when they had already allocated these funds. Um, and so the, that there was this withholding of money that had already been allocated in a way that is a violation of law. So it, it, it certainly helps the Democrats make their point that this isn't just a political witch hunt, that there is actually some, Um, you know, relevant legal and constitutional Mm -hmm. um, issues here. But uh, it's really things like text messages and documents from individuals like Lev Uh Parnas, who is the business associate indicted, um, business associate of Rudy Giuliani, and and that kind of evidence that many Democrats Uh would like to see introduced in a Senate trial.
0: Margaret Brennan, tell us about Face the Nation Sunday morning.
5: We will be digging into a lot of this with one of the top Republican leaders, Senator John Cornyn of Texas. We will press him on exactly what the public can expect uh, and what we will see, because not all of this will be done in front of the cameras. Um, We will talk Uh, to him about how it will uh, be proceeding on Tuesday. And we'll also talk to essentially one of the prosecutors, Jerry Nadler, a Democrat from New York, uh, chairman of the powerful House Judiciary Committee. Interesting. Interesting. We'll talk to him Uh, about the strategy. And we have Gary Cohn um, coming on to talk about the economic outlook and what that might mean for the president's reelection.
0: Very good, Margaret Brennan. Thank you so Strong much. Lineup, course, as always. On CBS, see it Sunday morning on the CBS Television Network. Hear it on Bloomberg Radio. We do that 2 p.m. in New York, Washington, in Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Newburyport. That's Face the Nation this Sunday at 2 on Bloomberg Radio. In this odd time, and with the raging debates of the weekend, it is important to speak to Mr. Whalen because he wrote a jewel of a book years ago, Inflated How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. And it's one of those books where you open up, Noel Rubini wrote the introduction, and Paul, you open it up and you go, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was absolutely riveting on the financial history of the country, of the nation, going back. 200 years an extraordinary book and chris whalen's got a twisted perspective uh paul sweeney on where we are
6: (laughs) exactly chris whalen thanks so much for joining us chris is the chairman of whalen global advisors and co-founder of institutional risk analytics all right so we had goldman sachs morgan stanley jp morgan bank of america a whole bunch of the big money centers they seem pretty good easy comps what's my takeaway
7: Uh, The takeaway is that the consumer side did much better than the institutional side. The bank's side, if you will, of J.P. Morgan, it's only half bank, uh, is having a tough time. Net interest income fell again, which is a legacy of the normalization of the money markets. Right. On the other hand, the banks, uh, the investment banking, trading, all of that did well. Uh, Good volumes on mortgage, they get a gain on sale on every mortgage they sell into the agency market. So, you know, all of those things were good. Um, But the thing I cautioned, and have been cautioning people on for two years, is that after the Fed pushed down the cost of funds so dramatically, it had to come back. And we're still only at 80% of where we were before the crisis, but the banking industry is 30% bigger. right? So there's still a huge subsidy embedded in cost of funds, and as they lose that over time, uh, you're gonna have spreads uh, squeezed.
6: Give us, I, I want to go ask you something about regulations. Yeah, I know post-financial crisis, a whole series of regulations layered on top of the financial services industry, uh, you know, having negative impact on the returns that those banks can generate. Are we at a point in time where we can expect meaningful rollback of some of those regulations? I know there's been some talk about it in the last six or 12 months.
7: Well, I, I hope, uh, led by Randall Quarles at the Federal Reserve Board, they try and rationalize them. You know, years ago, people got together in Washington, the different regulatory agencies and they had lunch. Right. And they said, what do we want? What has Congress told us and how do we implement that in a rational way? Because you don't want to hurt business. You know, all this fuss, for example, about non-bank companies posing systemic risk, okay, which is pretty silly, right. uh, it, you know, misses the fact that we have a banking system that pretty much has a monopoly on short-term funding. Years ago, when we were kids, mortgage companies could sell pass-throughs to money market funds. Yeah. But we don't let them do that anymore. So what we've done with each crisis is diminished the freedom and diminished the utility of the markets, thinking that that will protect us. And so you saw the most recent experience with Repo. Uh, right. And yet the strange thing is we still, as my good friend Ralph Del he likes to remind me, we have a shortage of collateral, even though the Treasury is issuing record amounts of debt.
0: You know, Chris Whalen, your charm has been—you've not been a critic of the banks, but you've been very aware of balance sheet risks, almost old school risk. And you've also said, "I want to participate in the banks." You've done that through preferred shares. Hmm. After a bang up year in the Keith Briette Index, uh, out near where it was two thousand six. Can you be comfortable owning the common shares of these two big-to-fail banks? Can you be comfortable with their preferred securities with a greater yield? Or does Chris Whalen cut it and run?
7: No, no. I own U.S. Bank Common and Preferred. I own City Trupps, the nine and three quarters, which are wonderful. Uh, I own Bank America Preferreds. By and large, I view the equity right now as pretty, pretty well valued. You know, JP's almost two times yeah, book.
0: Yeah, but I want to be clear, Chris, because mm. you get hit like a pinata by people saying you're anti-bank. You mm. own bank paper even while you're looking at the dynamics inside banks.
7: Correct. But I, I am anti-big bank. And I'm anti-sloppy, badly directed bank. Smaller institutions like U.S. Bancorp, which has always maintained the same size, they refuse to get bigger. They like half a trillion dollars. It lets them sleep at night.
0: Are you suggesting James Diamond should not get bigger?
7: I don't think the big guys need to get larger, but ironically, as our system grows in terms of both debt and liquidity, which the entire world uses to function, this is the great conundrum. Uh, you know that that will change. Banks have to get bigger in a way. They have to expand well, you know, you look at their because operating the currency is expanding.
0: But Chris, you look at their operating income build out over the last five years, and I mm. know they're going to build. I mean, you're going to get an entire floor on Park Avenue when they build the new skyscraper,
7: right? <laughs> <laughs> I make, don't know. You know, you I've had a few institutions contact me about getting back in the game, but I'm affiliated with Cohen right. & and Company, and the neat thing about those guys is they provide mortgage finance. We run a $10 billion-plus book of agency securities and whole loans. And what do you see there? Well, we saw the repo crisis. We saw instability in the middle of the month, which is supposed to not happen. And these were the early warning signs that should have told the Fed that we had a problem. This is back in June and July. Uh, By the time everybody came home from holiday, you know, in September. Uh, it was too late to fix it.
6: Chris, I'm looking at your institutional risk analysis uh, note, a uh, recent one, and I, I see a chart here, the IRA bank deadpool. I'm a little <laughs> nervous to ask what that is. I'm assuming I don't want to be on that list.
7: Yes, those are four banks, Deutsche, HSBC, Goldman, and Citi, that have underperformed. You know, the financials are as expensive as they have ever been, and I think only Goldman of that group is now at book value. Um, the rest are at a discount, and that tells you a couple of things, but particularly their efficiency in creating revenue. Look how efficient Wells Fargo still is. Those guys make money even though they're under a cloud. Uh, U.S. Bank, amazing performance for an institution that's large. But once you get really big, Bank of America, for example, who, by the way, I applaud this quarter, they rallied. You know, interesting story, Tom, you like this. Jamie Dimon went long duration last December. He wrote it down. But it looks like Bank of America missed that trade. And yet by the fourth quarter, they had rallied and they dropped their cost of funds when everybody else's funding costs is going up. Well, so, this is kudos you know, that, to that's Brian. the inside
0: baseball from Chris Whalen about the business is still being done like it used to be done. Chris, let's 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 shift gears here a little bit. I want to talk about wealth management. James Gorman is the glory god of the moment. We will speak with Mr. Gorman in Davos. So I was really looking forward to a set of important interviews with Moynihan, Corbett, uh, Gorman, and uh, Mr. Solomon over at Goldman Sachs. But tell me about wealth management, Chris, because it used to be an afterthought, and now it seems like everybody wants to, in honor of uh, the late Mr. Marin be like Payne Webber, do wealth management, do high net worth, blah, blah, blah. Can those margins actually be sustained if everybody wants in the pool?
7: Uh, I think it can, but it's certainly competitive. So when Goldman, for example, says that they're going to go in and essentially take share in that market, that's a tough proposition. Uh, Many banks, UBS, a number of them made the decision, much like Morgan Stanley, to go all in on the advisory side because it's low risk. And the investment banking side, these were not top tier investment banks, to be fair. But, but, but on they, a micro. They knew to get out.
0: But come on, this is on a microeconomic basis. It's like the way you're in your book, Inflated, you explain into the, the financial crisis. Oh, no, it's about of the business. seven.
7: You either make money there or you don't. Oh, come on. But <laughs> two,
0: I'm suggesting, Mr. Whalen, there's too many players. Everybody's yes. going to dive in in a, in a somewhat perfectly competitive milieu. Mm-hmm. Can wealth management sustain these ginormous 25% margins?
7: In the mainstream fat portion of it, the smaller accounts know, but there is a clientele out there that wants high touch. And as you know, I know a certain lovely redhead from Uruguay who's in that business, um, and I, you know, it, it can be done, and it will. What is this a sales campaign? <laughs> Always have to put a plug in for the wife. Well, that's Tom. good.
0: I, you know, we say good morning to Mrs. Whalen as well. Paul Sweeney, you know, you're a high net worth kind of guy. Paul, you've been following this for years. Can they maintain those Gorman-like?
6: margins. That's a great question, Tom, because you hear it from, you know, Morgan Stanley, as Tom mentioned, made a mm-hmm. big push under Gorman, you know, several years ago, taking Morgan Stanley from a swashbuckling trading culture to more of a, yeah. a, you know, a wealth management Credit Suisse at the same time gets out of it in, but the, in the U.S. They're both
7: still in banking, but in, in spots where they really have a comparative advantage. Right. Structured finance for Credit Suisse. Uh, Gorman, for example, has a great aircraft business. Big aircraft leasing deals. Morgan Stanley is the first stop. Yep. So they they pick their spots, but it's not like the old days when the broker tried to do everything
6: exactly and right. Gave those,
7: away lots of stuff. And <laughs> those
0: were the days, that.
6: Tom. Those were those, those were the days.
0: Chris Whalen, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated today with Whalen Global Advisors, important conversation, always controversial conversation, on the American banking system. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast